tale of two cities starts with that memorable line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. For very different reasons, that line serves well to describe the experience of the family of Jacob in the first half of the 19th century B.C. as the Israelite clan left the promised land and resettled in the land of Egypt. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times in that, in that the region was engulfed in severe famine. In that day, the masses were reliant on growing their own crops or pasturing their own herds for survival. You didn't just go down to Cub Food and pick up anything that you wanted, and if it's a famine in your area, they ship the food from somewhere else. This was severe trouble. Nothing would grow. The entire region had been plunged into a horrifying plight, and death roamed freely. It was the worst of times. But for the embryonic nation of Israel, it was the very best of times. While Canaan and Egypt languished in severe famine, Jacob's fractured and warring family found peace. What a transformation. Rivalry had given way to reconciliation, and hostility had been replaced with fraternity. And the age, Joseph, and the age Jacob, who had given up his favorite son, Joseph, for dead, had been reunited with his lost son. What rejoicing there was. Despair and sorrow had been replaced with exultant joy. But for Israel it was also the best of times in that while Canaan and, and Egypt languished under severe famine, Israel prospered. Famine plagues the land. People are on the verge of starving, unable to feed themselves. They sell everything that they have to gain food. But all the while the clan of Israel prospers. In the midst of famine, Israel feasts. While others are losing everything they own, Israel grows rich. How does this happen? And what does it all mean? And what does it mean to us? I think we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12 to really unpack Genesis chapter 47 and what is happening here. We go back to Genesis chapter 12 and we remember the call of Abram. The Lord said, Genesis 12, 1, to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Notice the next phrase. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise of God to Abram. This is not a suggestion about what might happen. This is not God's best guess as to what is going to happen. And this is not ultimately simply a statement to Abram that if you do what I say, I might think about this, or I will even do this if you obey. Now that's understood in the command to Abram. But this is really just simply straight up the promise of God. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And you will be a blessing. We move in our long journey to chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. And I'd like you to keep Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in your mind as we think through what we find here in Genesis 47. 
And we also need to think in all of this, not only of Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abram, but also have in your mind the picture of famine, of dying people, of a difficult situation physically in the land of Canaan and Egypt. In that context, we learn first of all in chapter 47, we've looked at the first half last week, but just by way of review, we've learned this. Number one, God blesses Israel through Pharaoh. God blesses Israel through Pharaoh. Verse 1, Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please, let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. God blesses Israel through Pharaoh. They are put in the best part of the land and settled there. Now go to verse 11 of chapter 47. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. A provision of food in the midst of famine. Feasting in famine. God uses Israel, uh, Pharaoh to bless Israel. In this remarkable way then, God blesses Israel, honoring his promise to Abram that I will bless you. The middle of a famine, years into a famine, is not a typical place to find the blessing of God, it wouldn't seem. But God has promised, I will bless you. And he does so in a unique way. But God also promised, remember, in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you. So I will use means in my providential workings. I will use people to bless you. I am the one blessing you, but that blessing will pass through individuals. And when that blessing passes through individuals, I'll also hit those people with blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Now let me ask you at this point, has Pharaoh blessed Israel? Are we on the page there? He is giving them provision. He is giving them a place. He is protecting and honoring them in a unique way among all the people of Egypt. Has he blessed them? Obviously the answer is yes, and I think at verse 13 that what follows is God's promise to bless those who bless Israel. If we read the narrative in that way, it makes sense. I've read a number of individuals who write and say this makes no sense, this passage. It doesn't fit in the book of Genesis, and some come up with their cockamamie ideas that there's somebody who threw this in here and it didn't have anything to do with the original writing and all of those stories. We just need to go back to Genesis 12 and remember God's promise. I will bless those who bless you. I think that verses 13 and following fit here very purposefully and very importantly in the flow of the book of Genesis. This is a dramatic fulfillment of God's promise to bless those who bless Israel. Now, God doesn't have to do it this way. And I 
pretty much guarantee he's never done it this way again. This is a strange passage in some respects, but he blesses Pharaoh. So God blesses Israel through Pharaoh. We find secondly at verse 7 and following that God blesses Pharaoh through Israel. We looked at that last week, verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from his presence. So as we noted last week, Jacob's blessing... He blesses Pharaoh here in his presence with this verbal blessing. It foreshadows the blessing of God on Pharaoh that is to come. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. We find then, beginning at verse 13, that Joseph's administrative wisdom conveys the blessing of God on Pharaoh also. Along with Jacob's blessing, we have Joseph's administration, and God is pouring out his blessing on the one who has blessed Israel. Verse 13, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. We're reminded again of the context. Now, don't miss that. Again, the critics say this section, verse 13, doesn't fit here. It was thrown in here. It's out of place. Notice what verse 12 says. Remember? Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his household, father's household, with food. It follows then, verse 13, as is a verse of contrast. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. So we have Israel feasting while the region suffers severe famine. It wasted away, in fact, the reading here, the Hebrew word to faint indicating that the people were growing weak and despondent with hunger. But there was, of course, one source of hope in this bitter ordeal. They were, there were storehouses full of excess grain in Egypt, and people flocked there to buy grain. There was only one problem. Verse 14, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. Somewhere in the seven-year period of severe famine, people began to run out of money. They used it all up in the purchase of grain. Now we have to remember again a very different world, a very different culture. This is not a setting in which people have a lot of cash. Much is done by bartering. Many people live with really without money, basically. But much is done by bartering and many, the vast majority, would depend on their own crops or their own herds in some way, raising their own food themselves. So in that setting, they run out of money. They can't feed their herds. They can't produce their own crops. The only thing they can lean on is their money, and that is in very short order, and it's gone very quickly. Now ask, answer this question in your own mind. Where does Joseph deposit the money? Where does he deposit the money, verse 14? He brought it to Pharaoh's palace. Would this have happened without Joseph? 
It is Joseph who interpreted Pharaoh's dream and Joseph's wisdom and administrative skill that pull all of this off. Remember, this is the man who stood before Pharaoh and said, here's what your dream means and you need to find a man who's wise enough to know how to manage the situation. And Pharaoh says, I think you're the man. None of this would have happened without Joseph. Without Joseph, where would Pharaoh be right now? He would be with the suffering masses dying He would be merely baffled by his dream and right now would be starving to death. But through Joseph, Pharaoh is enriched beyond description. Think about this. All of the money of the entire region goes into his coffers. Everybody's out of money. It all goes to Pharaoh. But money or not, the famine continues and the people are still hungry, verse 15. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. And by the way, this is very typical of Hebrew. That doesn't mean that every last penny and coin of every last person in this whole region was gone, necessarily. It means in general terms, basically, the people were empty. There was no more to spend. And many, many, and probably the vast majority of people actually had no money at all. Or not enough to even purchase any grain of significance. We don't know exactly how it applies to each individual in this region. But the point is, overall, the general, consen- the, the general conclusion, all the money's gone. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up, they say, verse 15, verse 16. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. So through that year, people traded their domesticated animals for grain. What good is an animal if you cannot feed it? And with no refrigeration to kill an animal, that's a feast for a few people for a night. Maybe you can push it a little bit farther, but you can't really live very long on killing animals. And so they sell off their animals to get grain so that they can live longer. But eventually the animals are gone as well. Verse 18, when that year was over, they came to him in the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. We can give you our bodies. It's a very interesting Hebrew word used there. It's not the common word for body. A rarely used word that's usually found in context of a corpse. It's a term of weakness and a term of trouble. All we have are our miserable bodies that are wasting away in famine. That's all that we have to give to you. You notice here also in these verses that they request seed. Apparently the famine is nearing an end. And seed was commonly given on interest. That is, the seed would be given to the individual. And then from the harvest, the, the, uh, it would be paid back to the one who gave the seed. And so that seems to be the contract here that they're initiating with Joseph. Give us seed that we might begin to plant apparently the seven years of famine coming to a close. 
Verse 20, so Joseph bought, here's the conclusion, he bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Now that could be said many different ways. But we have to catch here that it's said this way for a very specific reason. Joseph bought Egypt for Pharaoh. He did this for him. The Egyptians, verse 20, one and all sold their fields because the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. I'll make a few comments here on these verses that we'd understand them properly. We see, first of all, the irony in all of this, looking at it from the big picture. Do you see the irony? Once enslaved in Egypt, Joseph now enslaves the Egyptians to Pharaoh. Pharaoh blessed Joseph by bringing him out of slavery, and Joseph prospers Pharaoh with a nation of slaves. He delivers, in a sense, a, uh, a nation of slaves to him. Now, we do have to stop at this point and ask the question, I hope it's been on your mind, and is this right? Is Joseph really doing the right thing? First of all, we need to say about slavery and the way that the word is used, many times, particularly in the Old Testament or in the biblical context, the idea of slavery would hit us as very little difference with in, uh, as an employee, an employee situation. That's not always the case, but, but often it is, and I think that's more the case here. This is not the starkest form of slavery. Joseph designed something of what is really, we might call, a primitive feudal system. The Egyptians will farm the land for Pharaoh and pay him 20% of the harvest. That's the extent of their slavery. This is a fair deal. They remain free. They can work the land the way they choose to work the land. They just need to give him 20%. By the way, we give more than that, and we think we're free, right? So that's, that's how far their slavery goes. The grain belonged to Pharaoh. It was not Joseph's to give away is another point we need to consider. This is not Joseph's grain to give. This is Pharaoh's grain. It belongs to him. It was placed there in a unique way, preserved there in a unique way. It belongs to him. Thirdly, Joseph did not degrade the Egyptians by giving them something for nothing. He asked a fair price for the food, and they were only too happy to pay it. It was the famine that put them in trouble, not Joseph's plan. And he's never accused of that. I'm jumping ahead just a minute, but let me add in one more here, and that is that this deal is very merciful. He asks for 20%. The averages in that day were much higher, and so it is all very fair and very appropriate. I don't know. Some people seem to think in these terms, but I don't personally, and I don't think it would be right to treat others that way. But consider if, if you're in business and you're in a time of tremendous recession and you're scrambling to keep ahead and you're having to sell things off in your business and you go to an individual who has a lot of money to a bank and what do you ask? You ask the banker for mercy. Do you ask the banker for a handout? Say, would you please give me $50,000? I'm not going to ask that and I don't think it would be right for someone to ask that. You say, here's what I have to sell. I, I appeal to your mercy if you could bring the interest rate down or something like that, but I'm not asking you to give me anything. And Joseph doesn't treat the Egyptians that way, and it doesn't appear that they see it as wrong on his part at all. This is Pharaoh's grain, and they need to stay alive. It's the famine that's the problem, problem not the administration. Now, one more note here on verse 21. It says that Joseph reduced the people to servitude. You probably find a marginal note there. 
It, it might read something along the lines as I have here that he moved the people into the cities. The problem here, that's a, well, I won't go into the problem, but uh, Joseph moved, the, it could be here, and I think probably the better reading of the, of the Hebrew text is that Joseph moved the people from the countryside into the cities where grain was stored and where the people could more easily buy food. What our translation here follows another translation which seeks to clean up a problem. I don't know that it's necessary. I think it what, what is being said is that Joseph brought these people into the store cities and that he gave them food from there. Now, be that as it may, there's no difference either way. They obviously were enslaved. But there was an interesting exception to this state of affairs, and that's what we find in verse 22. However, he did not buy the land of the priests, because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. By virtue of previously established policy, Pharaoh provided for the priestly caste, and so Joseph follows the plan. Now, we have to understand the priests were not some side unit, social unit out there that was just involved in religious things. The priestly class of Egypt was the nobility class. They were magistrates of the highest rank. They bore the cost of religion themselves. So they had to be very wealthy, including the provision of the sacrificial animals. They, had to, or they were uh, uh, allowed to advise Pharaoh many times. They were involved in public affairs. They taught astronomy and geometry and other sciences. They recorded public affairs as chroniclers. These were very important individuals. They were independently wealthy, but part of their work for Pharaoh's court was to be provided for. Now think about this. Why is this here? What do we care about what happened to the priests in Egypt? I think it's here for a couple of important reasons. First of all, we see that Israel is, in, is classified like the priests. Pharaoh is providing food for two people, for the Israelites and for the priests, no one else. Israel is in a class with the priests. In a unique way, they are provided for by Pharaoh. It is a unique blessing. Secondly, I think it's here to remind us of this. Who is Joseph's wife? Joseph's wife, remember, is Asenath, who is the daughter of the priest of On, or Heliopolis, which may have been the prominent, the, the most prominent city in the, in the cult of Egypt. Which means, what? On his father's side, Joseph's family is provided for by Pharaoh, and in, on his wife's side, that family is also provided by Pharaoh. Joseph is on the top of the world. In every way you cut it, he is receiving the blessings of Egypt. His wife's family, his father's family, and him as Pharaoh's prime minister. And so for Joseph, it is the best of times in the midst of the worst of times. Verse 23, we read on, Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you in your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you, so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. As I mentioned, ancient Near Eastern standards, the, the going rate was 33%. So this is a very gracious offer on Joseph's part to only have to pay 
of their harvest. In fact, any doubt that Joseph was fair and righteous in this whole ordeal is put to rest by verse 25. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. The Egyptians do not accuse Joseph of ruining them, do they? They thank him for rescuing them. Joseph's policies were fair. They were honest. There were no complaints from the Egyptians. They fully recognized that had Joseph not been there, they would be dead. They're not cynical. They're not critical. They're deeply thankful. This is precisely why God chose Joseph. You remember back in 45 and verse 5, he said, I have been sent here by God to save lives. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Notice verse 26. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land, law concerning land in Egypt, still in force to this day. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Four centuries later, still in force to this day, Moses throws in that editorial comment that a fifth of the produce belongs to, to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priest that did not become Pharaoh's. So Pharaoh blessed Israel, and in turn, we see that God has blessed Pharaoh. In Genesis 12, 2, God said, I will bless you. In this sea of distress, in the midst of severe famine, in which people must part from all their material goods just to stay alive, God blesses Israel, and he blesses the one who blesses them. So we find, thirdly, that God blesses Israel in Egypt, verse 27, a repetition of this truth. Verse 27, now the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Our text, our translation here, trips just a bit at verse 27, where it says, now the Israelites settled in Egypt. The Hebrew text reads, now Israel settled in Egypt, and it's in the singular. The word settled is not a plural, but a singular. So it is saying that Israel, that is Jacob, settled in Egypt. What's interesting then, and this is the reason I think that our translation changes that word, what's interesting is that the other verbs that follow are plural. So there's this beautiful meshing from the singular ish Israel into the plural Israel. Israel, Jacob, settled in Egypt, and Israel, plural, the people, prospered, grew fruitful greatly in number. Interesting connection there as the text will begin to move now and transition more and more toward the establishment of the kingdom and the people of Israel as they prosper in Egypt. We notice the twofold blessing here. First of all, property. While the Egyptians, I mean, you can't miss this. Or, or we miss the whole point of it. While the Egyptians are selling off their property, Israel is acquiring property. And what's the second blessing here in verse 27? It's fertility, right? They are increasing greatly in number. Go back to 46 and verse 3. We remember that this is what God says to Jacob will happen. He prophesies, 46.3, I am the God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. God has promised this, and the promise is being fulfilled as God offers or promises to bless His people. Now, think about this. This is amazing grace. The world languishes while God's people prosper. But put yourself 
in Jacob's place right about here. I, I don't know that my words are very, have been very capable of picturing what he enjoys at this moment. But let's try to fill in the blanks there. Israel occupies Goshen. They are well fed. They are accumulating things and property and they are growing in number. They are, in a word, prosperous. That's the people of Israel. Now think of his son Joseph, Jacob's son Joseph. Joseph is alive. He's living nearby and is firmly established in power over Egypt. He has single-handedly increased the wealth and power of Pharaoh beyond description. So I, I put it this way simply, Pharaoh owes him one. It's not going to go badly for Joseph as long as he's alive, you can guarantee that. Secondly, Joseph is the second in command over the kingdom, and, he's, and he has been now for some 25 years. Thirdly, he has saved the entire nation with his wisdom and his skill. The people love and respect him. He is the Savior in Egypt. I mean, Joseph is the man there. For 25 years now, Israel is prosperous in Egypt, and his son, Jacob's son, is seated, ruling over Egypt under only Pharaoh. And for 17 years, Jacob basks in the light of this sweet providence and divine provision. The famine ends. Fertility returns. And Israel is in a most privileged position in the most powerful nation on earth. And so it's right about here that we might expect to see Jacob doing what? You fill in the picture. But mine is maybe, I don't know, sitting by his pool in a lounge chair with a, under an umbrella reading a book with a lemonade in one hand. He has got life made. There is nothing more to do. He's an old man. He just closed out his days. Everything's prosperous. Everything's right. Everything's good. Remember, this is the man that had arrived in Egypt as a starving Bedouin shepherd, dependent on Pharaoh's grace. But now he rests at ease with no worries. And after 17 years of this, he is comfortable, we would think. But this is amazing grace. Because in that picture of ease and wealth and prosperity... There's something that's stirring in Jacob's heart. It's not about the ease and the wealth and the privilege and the position. There's something more important. And Jacob's come to this after all these years of travail with God and sin and weakness and difficulty. He's coming to see the real picture. Now, we've not found Jacob to be a perfect man, have we? As a matter of fact, there's been plenty of times when it's been pretty hard to even call him a good man. But in his old age, Jacob is about to make the first in a string of significant acts of faith toward God. With all that he enjoys in Egypt, put him in that place, with all that he enjoys, verse 28 and following indicate that Israel chooses blessing. Hear these words. He chooses blessing in Canaan. Not in Egypt. 
but in Canaan. Verse 28. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. Probably seated on a mat of some sort, Jacob summons Joseph to his side. Joseph is his favorite son. He will soon be blessed as the firstborn son, having that privilege, though he's not in time, chronologically, the firstborn. He will be in authority. And he obviously has the greatest influence in Egypt. And so we would understand that he calls Joseph here for this setting, to this setting. He asks him to swear an oath. Joseph puts his hand under Jacob's thigh, euphemistically, under the source of his offspring, which was a custom in that time to say, I'm swearing to you and to your offspring to follow. And I think he probably calls his son, Jacob calls his son here to swear this oath so that he will have a unique sense of responsibility by calling God to witness. There's a couple of things that are so far removed from us here in our culture. But to swear an oath was to say, God watches. And I, I really have my own beliefs about this as my own conjecture, but I really think that God actively worked in a unique way in that day because there weren't so many laws. There, weren't so, there wasn't a police force in the same way that we would understand it. And there are very strong indications that God did hold people to account for the words that they swore in a very unique way. So this is no messing around oath-taking here. Jake, uh, Joseph, I want you to hear me, and I want you to do this. Now there's a second thing that misses us, and that is the importance of one's burial place. It is hard for us to even begin to imagine what emphasis people put on their death and where they would lie in death. That doesn't mean nearly so much to us. I mean, it's not a thought that really crosses my mind very often. I, what part of earth you want to dig a hole in to throw me in, I, I'm, I'm having a good time and you can worry about that. <laughs> I, who cares about that really in some reason? That's okay if you do. If it's a big thing to you, I'm not uh, saying anything against that. But we don't think about that so much. This was crucial to them where they were buried and for Jacob he would be buried in prominence in Egypt it was one of the greatest honors that could be imagined for a person and he says to his son swear to me that you'll not bury me here how did God promise to bless those who bless Israel he never said. Galatians 3.8 makes the ultimate blessing clear that it's the person of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't say in Genesis 12 how he's going to bless those who bless you. But how did God say he would bless the people of Abram? How many times have we said it through the series in Genesis? Two ways. What were they? An offspring and a land. Can you read this and say... This means nothing. Jacob just has a burial plot back there with his name on it, and he kind of paid this guy a little bit more than he wanted to, some rookie salesman that kind of worked him over, and he's got this burial plot, and it just 
irritates him the fact that he bought it, so sent him back to Egypt, or back to Canaan? Obviously, no. This is an act of faith. He is saying, I believe the promises of God. We're in Egypt now. We're not in Canaan. But He has promised us that land. And when people remember me, when people identify the God with whom I identify, I don't want to be in Egypt. I want to be in Canaan, in the land of promise, where my people will live someday. Bury me there. Go back, if you will, to Genesis 13 and verse 14. Everything that we read in the book of Genesis, Jacob knew it a whole lot better. We have a sketchy account of what's happened. He knows all of the promises to Abraham and to Isaac, and he knows all of the history. These people, an oral culture, kept these things alive in unbelievable ways to us. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14, he's very aware. The Lord had said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the, to the Lord. I think Jacob's identification with this promise to Abraham was Jacob's greatest feast. It may be in many respects his greatest act of faith, if not the wrestling with the man of God. This is the ultimate feast. Not the things of this life and enjoying the things and the rewards and the prosperity and the prominence of this life. The real feast is the person who has faith in the promises of God and feast on them. There's more than just the family of Israel that's been rescued. Jacob's faith has been rescued. Here at the end of his life, he identifies with the promises of God. Back then to chapter 47, picking up verse 30. If you'll bear with me just a little longer. Verse 30, he said, Jacob, or rather Joseph to Jacob, I will do as you say, the end of verse 30. Verse 31, swear to me, he said, Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. You may have an alternative reading there. It's because the word staff and bed are the same in Hebrew with just different vowels. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, they didn't put the vowels in, so you have to add the vowels, and depending on which vowels you add, it's the same word. Hebrews 11.21, though, does use the word staff, and so I think that's probably the idea. The idea that I get as best as I can get here, and it is sketchy, but apparently... Jacob is too feeble to stand up or to rise. And if he is on a mat there on the ground, perhaps even reclining to some degree, but I wonder if he's on a mat on the ground and he's sitting down, 
and he has his staff like this, and he uses his staff on the top of his staff, and he bows down in worship to the Lord. And I think also, probably, in fulfillment of chapter 37 and verse 10, remember the dream that Joseph had. Your father will bow down to you. We've never seen for sure that Jacob has bowed down to Joseph, but he may hear. It's not a bowing of homage to his son as much as it is an act of worship to God, but it may be fulfillment of 37.10. Be that as it may, we see that Jacob worships. He worships God in faith, asking for his bones to be sent back to Canaan. Don't bury me here. I'm sojourning here. These aren't my people. Bury me in Canaan. And he worships. Let's consider. I'd, I'd like you to make your way to Matthew. We're going to take a few more moments here, if you will, to consider some implications of this text out of the words of Jesus. And this is vital work. I've maybe belabored some of these verses too long, and, but we want to make sure we understand it. And then secondly, we also want to make sure that we understand that it has something to do with us and it has something to do with the teaching of Christ and it very much does. And I've come up with just four very short points if you'll consider carefully here. Please follow. First of all, this narrative illustrates for us one of the fundamental truths about our God. What is that? He provides for his people. We have to know that about the character of God. He provides for his people. He's in that business. That's the kind of God that he is. He provides for his people. Did you hear what was quoted this morning? Matthew chapter 6. What did Jesus say? Very same thing. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? He says down through that passage again, do not worry. And again, do not worry, verse 31, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things. When you say those kinds of things, now for us it's hard because to worry about food and drink and clothing is not something that crosses our mind very often. We worry about other things, though, financially. He says when you do that, you know what you're doing, says Jesus? You're thinking like a pagan. Pagans don't have a God in heaven who rules and cares and loves and provides, and so they worry because they have no God. Don't think like a pagan. We find in the book of Genesis, in the life of Jacob, that our God is a God who provides. And Jesus fleshes that out in his own ministry and teaching. Now, God may not provide, will not provide for us in such dramatic fashion as he did for Israel. That's his call. That's his decision. And I think it is probably possible for a believer to starve to death in certain circumstances if God calls them to that. But God says, Jesus says here, don't worry about the things of this life. You have a God who provides. And as Christians, that preservation takes on new ideas and meaning on this side of the cross. We think of the promise of Hebrews 13.5 that our God will never leave us or forsake us. We think of Romans 8.35 and 37, passage we were privileged to pray through here on 
uh, in this prayer meeting that we had this weekend. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or, hear it, famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God provides for His people. He provides in His own way, in His own time, but nothing can separate us from His love ever if we are genuinely related to Him in Christ. Second, God blesses those who bless His people. We've got to take that principle home with us here. Matthew chapter 25, we find this idea also in the teaching of Christ. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. God blesses those who bless His people. Matthew 25 and verse 31. The book of Genesis is the seed from which the Bible sprouts. And the teachings of Jesus are so confirming here and helpful. Verse 31, Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on the throne in the heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. <clears throat> I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Good luck if you don't have compassion on those. But you notice the humility of those who respond, who did have compassion on others, giving them drink and food and care and clothing, who visited people in trouble. What does Jesus say? Or what does the text say then, verse 37? Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, God's people, you did for me. And he will say, enter into the joy of the Lord. Pharaoh experienced God's promise in Genesis 12, 3 in a very dramatic way, didn't he? What was God's promise? I will bless those who bless you. Through Joseph, Pharaoh is enriched beyond imagination. Four centuries later, another pharaoh who will not know Joseph and had no appreciation for the fact that it was Joseph's policy that had put land, the land of Egypt, in the hands of Pharaoh, that pharaoh will learn what it means, Genesis 12, 3, that I will curse those who curse you. The pharaoh in Joseph's day enjoyed the blessing of Genesis 12, 3. The pharaoh in Moses' day experienced the curse of Genesis 12, 3. 
Notice Jesus' warning in Matthew 18 and verse 5. Matthew 18 and verse 5. Take this to heart, people of God. We must. Matthew 18, 5, And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, he's talking about his people, these little ones who believe in me, Anyone who causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Pharaoh, in the time of Moses, learned what that meant. And so will those who harm the people of God. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, we read of this theme continuing to the end of the age. We could find other places in Revelation, but just very quickly, chapter 6 and verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. God says to them, the butchering must continue for a time. But verse 16, that time will end. And in that time, they will call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I know that it's not American, it's not contemporary evangelicalism, But I read a passage like Genesis 47 and I'm fearful. I don't want to ever curse God's people. Because he blesses those who bless his people. One more point, I'll be very brief here. Two more, very brief. God blesses the world through his people. I don't need to say much on this other than we know what that means in our setting. How do you bless this world? Galatians 3, 8, Paul refers directly to Genesis 12, 3 when he identifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. We bless the people of this world by explaining that a son of Abraham died 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty of sin And he rose from the dead to give forgiveness. And we call upon people to heed that gospel message and to repent and to respond in faith. We bless the nations. Are you an avenue of the blessing of God to the nations? In this whole process, there will be cursing. As Matthew 6.28 brings out, But let me hasten to the final point, faith 
And that is that God calls upon the faith of His people. When we are privileged to live by faith, it is the best of times, even if it is the worst of times. It's not the riches of Egypt that Jacob esteemed. It wasn't the riches of Egypt of the next one that walked in the court of Pharaoh that he esteemed either, Moses. It was the land of promise because that was the will of God. And that must be the end to which we strive, that we would walk in faith in this world. God provides for His people. He blesses those who bless His people. He blesses the world through His people. And He blesses us through faith. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come before You with great thanks in our heart for what you have done through faith in Jesus Christ to give salvation. And I pray that we would, as your people, be a blessing to the nations. We think of our young people who right now are gathering in Mexico and ministering to a church there and who will later uh, tomorrow afternoon be contacting unbelievers that are there. And we pray, dear God, that your mercy would be on them, that your blessing would be on them. And we ask, dear God, that you will allow them to be a blessing to the nations. Allow them to proclaim the gospel. And God, may we not be so hypocritical as to raise money and train young people and send them off and not do the same here where we are. I pray, dear God, that you will open opportunities for us to be a blessing not only to your people, and may we do that in our church and among others. May we also be a blessing to the world in which we live. I pray that the people of that, that those who work with people in our church would realize that there is a benefit. I pray that those who are neighbors of us will realize that there's a benefit to being near us. I pray, dear God, that we would be a blessing to this world and ultimately that we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring people out of darkness into light. God, I pray to this end. And Lord, I pray for your people now. I plead and intercede in their behalf. I ask, God, that our faith would be strong and real, that you'll help us to think past the riches of our Egypt, and that you will help us to identify with the land of promise for us, the heavenly realm. We long for the day when the faith will become sight, and until that end, may you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.